from the Public Affairs staff of the Columbus Dispatch, this is Buckeye Forum. Welcome to another Buckeye Forum. We're here today with Rich Cordray, former Consumer Financial Protection Bureau head, former Ohio Attorney General, former Treasurer. You just can't keep a job, man, or something. That's uh, apparently not. Uh, should we mention the Jeopardy Championship now? The five-time Jeopardy sure, Championship. Let's from, get that out of the way from, early. From, from back in the day. <laughs> so Rich is uh, now seeking yet another job from us Ohioans. He's running for governor. One of a whole pile of Democrats that met uh, the filing deadline. With me today is Marty Schleiden, our reporter who's covering the Democratic governor's race this year. I'm Daryl Rowland, the public affairs editor. I mainly just sit around and watch and give orders and stuff. So, Well, Rich, welcome uh, to the new dispatch, to our podcast studios. Glad to be here. Thank you. All right. Well, let's just start out real basic. As we mentioned, half facetiously, but you have uh, you know, perhaps the most experience, certainly on the Democratic side, of government jobs uh, on a statewide basis. Tell me... Uh, What makes Rich Corduroy the most qualified candidate for governor this year? So I think there's two things, Daryl, as we've approached this race. The first is that I think that we have the right focus, and we take that focus from what I know to be and here to be around the state on the minds of most Ohioans, which is economic issues affecting themselves and their families. We call it kitchen table issues. Betty Sutton, my running mate, and I are both very focused on the basket of issues, including access to affordable health care, having, having the ability to get the uh, education and training that you and your children need to secure their future, uh, having access to good paying jobs of the kind that pay a sustainable wage to raise a family on. And I would also say making provision for a decent uh, and lasting uh, retirement. Those are the things that we're focused on. Second is that we both Uh, in her case and my case, have a track record of delivering uh, results on those issues. And if I'm talking to Ohio voters about what is it that you want in a governor, I think they want to know it's somebody who's thinking about the things I care about most, focused on those things, and I believe can deliver results and solve problems and address issues for the community. That's what we're offering this ticket of Cordray Sutton. You obviously had a a choice uh, to remain in in the federal job uh, appointed by President Obama. You're uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Your term would have expired in July of this year. I could have stayed probably a few more months. There was a lot of talk about President Trump firing me from that job. I have it uh, an understanding that there were a lot of Ohio Republicans who counseled him not to do that before I could get into the governor's race. So I actually believe he might well have fired me as soon as the filing deadline came and went just now in, in February. So whether I could have stayed beyond a, a couple more months or so was very unclear. But what was important was that I finish some of the most important work that we had in front of us at the Bureau Uh, I stayed to fight the administration to be able to do that. The last piece was the payday lending rule, the national payday lending rule that we were able to get into the law uh, in November. Uh, And at that point, uh, I felt that it was time uh, for me to consider leaving and coming back here and thinking about getting into the governor's race, which was later than I would have liked, but at the same time uh, seemed like there was still an opening there. And now I'm in the governor's race with both feet, and we're moving forward at a very fast pace. I'll let Marty jump in here. I've just got to ask you, as you look now at Budget Director Mulvaney has taken over, at least as interim director of your old agency, and seems to be not just rearranging the furniture, but maybe throwing it out in the street here, zeroing out the budget, going back maybe on some of those payday uh, lending changes that you made, maybe not pursuing the, the credit bureaus as aggressively as you would like. I mean, how does that feel? Like, you know, you just busted, uh, you know, your hump 
all those years to get all that stuff in place and now it's i don't know perhaps some of it's being undone well it doesn't feel good to see things that you gave your life to knocked down by others it's not an uncommon thing in our government this administration has been all about unwinding what the previous administration did and i've seen it happen in state government as well i think if something's going to be lasting like the consumer bureau uh, there's going to be ebbs and flows and there's going to be ups and downs Uh, the important thing is to move forward when you have the opportunity to do so and hunker down when there's times that people are trying to reverse those policies. This bureau will have to go through that time and again if it's going to last 50 or 100 or 200 years, as I hope it will and expect that it will. I talked all last year with the folks at the Bureau about the fact that we would be going through a transition. It was inevitable. I had an end to my term that was looming. And as I said, there was every prospect that I might be fired once it was clear that I was not going to be coming back to Ohio in time to be in this race. And one of the things we talked about was that new leadership will affect the Bureau, but the Bureau will affect new leadership. And for people there to stay strong and remain committed to the mission was incredibly important and there has been very little turnover that I have seen and yes they're reversing some of the policies but a lot of them are still in place a lot of them will remain in place because they're sensible policies is standing on the side of consumers to see that they're treated fairly is the core principle of that agency we build it around that principle it will last because it's needed and although there will be reversals on certain individual cases and certain individual matters I think it would be quite an outcry if they were to reverse course entirely on the central components of that mission. So we will see. I will be vocally critical of things that they're doing that I disagree with. And I thought about whether to do that or not, but I just couldn't really help myself. If there are things that they're doing that uh, I agree with, I will be supportive. And that's just something we'll see as it all unfolds. Now, Director Mulvaney is a temporary occupant of that position because they will have to nominate and confirm a successor at some point. And we'll see who that is and we'll see how that process unfolds. This is simply a temporary thing. I believe the temporary thing is being handled wrongly because I believe that uh, my deputy director should have been the person who had that authority. That's in the courts right now. It's in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and we'll see what they decide ultimately. But that remains a live issue uh, in Washington. So let's move to Ohio, if we could. As of closing yesterday, the field grew to seven Democrats now running for governor. How do you want to distinguish yourself? What can what are you going to do to let Ohio voters know that you're you stand out from the rest of the Democratic field? I think it might actually be eight, although we'll see uh, when the petitions are validated who all uh, actually qualified for the ballot, and that may take a couple weeks. But look, there's a number of things that I think make the ticket of myself and and Betty Sutton stand out uh, from the field. The first is uh, I'm the only candidate among all of them who has ever been elected to a statewide office, and I've been elected to two different statewide offices, both treasurer and attorney general. And so I'm the the only candidate who has actually served in statewide offices and actually served the people all over this uh, state. Everybody else to whatever they've been elected to, it's been a limited part of the state. And I think that's a difference. Also, I had the chance in office to represent people on some of the issues that mattered during my time there, including on the foreclosure crisis, where we put together Save Our Homes task forces that went all over the state. There were more than 50 county task forces that worked to save people and keep them in their homes. And we saved thousands of homes. And a lot of people around the state remember that work. And as I've been around the state, I've been really grateful to know that seven years later, people have not forgotten. And they would like to see that kind of spirit of partnership again from their state officials working with local officials and our great nonprofits and people in the private sector to tackle big problems. 
A third thing is that both Betty Sutton and I stand out because we both have held significant positions in the federal government. We were both appointed by President Obama to hold uh, positions. In my case, I was America's consumer watchdog. In her case, she oversaw the St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation, which had to do with economic development on the Great Lakes, including Lake Erie. Both of us have been through appointment processes at the federal level, and I think that that speaks well for for both of us. And having executive experience, which is quite critical, it is a different thing to be a legislator than it is to run a department or an agency or a government. And I have run the state treasurer's office and did that during the financial crisis, which was a difficult time. Ran the attorney general's office, which is about 1,800 people, and ran the consumer bureau. And Betty also also has the experience of running that uh, the Seaway Corporation. So I think those are all things that we have to offer. And again, I think our vision is the right one for the state. Our focus is the right one for the state. But people want to know that these are candidates who can win in the fall, because otherwise it's all just idle talk. And they want to know that if you win in the fall, you're going to be able to deliver results. And both of us have a track record of doing that. I got to go to Eastern Ohio for the first Democratic debate. And that's a region that's really turned into Trump country. And I think that part of the appeal is that they've been suffering economically. But I think part of the appeal appeal has been a visceral one, too. How do you plan to talk to those voters? So first of all, I would challenge that assumption. I think if you look back just a few years, you would say it was Obama country. This last election, yes, it was Trump country. But I don't think there's such a thing as Trump voters or Obama voters in Ohio. I think there's Ohio voters. And I think you go out and make a case to them. And they are open-minded. They want to know that somebody is willing to make change and help them in some of the parts of the state that have felt left behind. I know that debate was in Mingo Junction, and I know the area well. And I've been over there for a number of events over the years and worked with people in those counties, including, again, uh, saving people's homes for, for from foreclosure. I think you talk to people about the things that matter to them, and you talk about what you're going to do about it, and you draw a contrast between yourself and your opponents, and people think hard and make a decision about who they think is the best candidate. But I don't think that anybody owns voters in any part of Ohio. I think you, you make a case uh, and people make up their minds. That's at least my, my acquaintanceship with the Ohio electorate. Will we see President Obama in this uh, state uh, on your behalf, do you think, this year? I'm sure you will. Okay, before the primary, or do you think that would be more of a general election? I, I can't speak to that at this point in time, but uh, I'm sure you will. Now, former Supreme Court Justice Bill O'Neill said that he would get out of the race if you got in initially. And then he went back on that and said that he was doing so because you would not take his position on ardently for marijuana legalization. What do you think about marijuana legalization in Ohio? So first of all, I heard those comments and saw that they were made over the course of a number of months. Uh, obviously, he speaks for himself and uh, makes up his own mind. Uh, and you know, people can decide whether they think there's consistency or inconsistency there. I certainly don't think it's appropriate when people are considering running for office to say that someone else has to do what I tell them to do in order to you know, for me to be or not be a candidate. People ought to make up their own minds, uh, and they can and they should. But the notion that I was going to be led around by the nose by someone saying, you have to do this or you have to do that uh, in order to run for governor or have my support, that's that's never been the way I've conducted myself, and I won't do it this year either. But where do you stand on legalization of recreational marijuana? So in, in my view, that issue was put to a vote of the people just a, just a couple of years ago. Having been put to a vote of the people and been voted down, it should be put back to a vote of the people if people want to approve that. I think that's the only feasible way that's going to be 
uh, brought up uh, in the state at this point in time. I don't see this legislature being willing to legislate that. So people will make an effort to have that on the ballot, is my understanding. The public will either vote that up or down. Whoever is in state government, no matter who it is or what party, they will implement the voters' will on that, and I will do the same. I'm Marty Schladen, a member of the Columbus Dispatch's Public Affairs Team. On Buckeye Forum today, Daryl Rowland and I are talking with Rich Cordray, Democratic candidate for governor, former director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and former attorney general of the state of Ohio. Before we we went on the air, uh, Rich, we were talking a little bit about the the current House Bill 160 that would uh, give uh, rights to GLBT Ohioans, uh, add them to the list of folks that uh, you you couldn't discriminate against, essentially in housing, public accommodations, things of of that nature. That's making its way through the legislature. uh, Is that something you would support? Is that something you would sign as governor? I do support it. I will sign it as governor. I will advocate for it. I will say this. It is one thing that uh, people can now marry publicly in this state, but if they can marry publicly and that means it can cost them their job or cost them their rental housing and they can be thrown out on the street, there's something fundamentally wrong about that. It is not fair to people. I think more and more businesses, as we had just discussed, are coming around to the view that if we don't have a welcoming and inclusive and tolerant community, we're going to lose a lot of business around this country, including things like we're trying to compete for this uh, Amazon, major Amazon facility. And that could cost us that facility because uh, some states are are more forward-looking on those things and some states are more backward-looking. But I do believe that if we're going to keep our young people in Ohio, if we're going to have all the people who come here to get higher education be willing to stay in the state, and if we're going to recruit businesses and attract them from not only around the country but around the world, we are going to have to be a tolerant and inclusive uh, community. It will strengthen our community and it will strengthen our economy and it will strengthen our way of life in Ohio. And I feel strongly about that. Opponents of that bill, of course, have raised some, some familiar issues. Uh, everything from the, you know, what what to do with transgender use of school bathroom facilities, shower facilities, things of that nature, up to the, there's a Supreme Court case, you know, we're awaiting an opinion now on the wedding cake bakers. Should they be forced, so to speak, to make a, a cake for a wedding or photographers? You name it. You know, where do you come down on that stuff? And, you know, that's, that's sort of the Look, there's a lot tough of, issues on, on for both sides, I think, on that, because that's, that's kind of the cutting edge of the, this issue. There's a lot of side issues, particular issues. Those will probably be decided in the courts, as they usually are. But there's a basic fundamental principle here of fairness. Just as you should not be able to lose your job be based on whether you're a man or a woman, just as you should not be able to lose your job or have it taken away from you because you're one race or another, that's fundamental to American law these days. It is true. In, in the, a number of states, I believe a majority of states, that the same is true based on sexual orientation. You should not be able to lose your job if people can fire you just because of that. Uh, it's based on prejudice, and that's what it is. Or take away your housing or other things that uh, everybody else is entitled to on an equal basis. I just think that that is, uh, that is where America is moving. It's where our younger generation is moving. And it's time everybody got on board with that. On the stump, you've talked about cuts to local government funding. I think a lot of people believe that the opioid epidemic has not had the amount of resources put toward it that are needed. Where would you find money to spend toward opioids and toward local governments? So I would first criticize uh, the federal government under this administration that has purported to declare an emergency Uh, over the opioid uh, crisis, but is not providing funding that is typical when you declare an emergency. So it's sort of like they've talked a good game, but they haven't actually produced much of anything for Ohio. And I think that that's something we need to continue to press the administration on. They need to put their money where their mouth is. In the state of Ohio, we've had 
the current leadership has been in place for the last eight years, and the opioid crisis blew up on their watch and expanded to a level that is hardly seen anywhere else in the country. And we've done very poorly at dealing with that epidemic. And I and I do believe now that people are running for office in the seventh year of their eight-year term. They're coming forward with plans and things. Where, where have they been for the last uh, seven years? I think that there's blame to go around on that as well. So, But what I would say is we can't have a state legislature that is constantly fighting our local governments in this state and breaking the trust and partnership that we've had between state and local government for decades in this state of Ohio. If they're doing that, you're not going to be able to work together to solve problems. You're not even going to be able to work together to solve the basic problems that local government is in place to do, let alone deal with new crises like the opioid epidemic. And by the way, we saw a somewhat similar set of circumstances about a decade ago where the foreclosure crisis was something new to Ohio. It had not existed before, hadn't existed since the Great Depression. Nobody understood it. Nobody knew what to do about it. We wasn't in anybody's job description. We all got together. Uh, as I said, we created those Save Our Homes task forces of state and local officials working together, working in complementarity with one another, and brought together nonprofits and the private sector. If we're going to battle something like the opioid crisis, which is also washing over this state in a way that we have not seen before, we're going to have to have that partnership be part of it. But if the state legislature is going to continue to strip money from local governments so they can't even do the basics of their job, and then is going to somehow expect that that local government, which is the face-to-face service delivery system for people and the face-to-face government that improves our communities, is going to deal with extra things like the opioid crisis, that is a a recipe for failure, and it has been a recipe for failure for the past several years. Where do you find the money? I think you find the money by, first of all, restoring the relationship between the state and local government, and you find the money the way you always find it, which is by prioritizing uh, certain things in the budget that you think need to be addressed. Right now, if, if the, the criticism is that they're not providing money, it's because they aren't really serious about addressing this crisis. They want to pretend like it's going to go away. They want to pretend like it's somebody else's problem. It's all of our problem, and the state government needs to lead on the issue. And we need to have that battle with the legislature about how we're going to prioritize funding and support for local governments battling this effort. Let me say one other thing, which is the Medicaid expansion, which is very much at risk in the state of Ohio right now. John Kasich pushed that through almost single-handedly against the uh, wishes and against the uh, desires of the Republican legislature. Once he goes, they're dying to cut it back, freeze it, or get rid of it altogether. If you do that, that's going to make the opioid crisis all the worse. We will not have uh, facilities available. We will not have treatment available. We will not have bed space available. Uh, That's going to make it even more difficult to address the opioid crisis in the state of Ohio. It's the wrong direction. I'm very opposed to that approach. Speaking of priorities, Rich, real fast, let's just jump on education. Two things. You are very familiar with the constitutional requirement for a the state to provide a thorough and efficient education to the school children of Ohio. Do you think that constitutional threshold is being met? I don't think so. And I would say there's, if you go back, there were really two parts to this uh, issue when it came before the Ohio Supreme Court and since. The first was the condition of our school facilities in the state, which was atrocious. I think we were 49th out of the 50 uh, states of the union in terms of the quality of our school buildings uh, and district by district. They were just truly shameful horror stories about the kind of conditions children would be subjected to to, to go to go to school. There was a lot of work done on that issue. There was work done under the Strickland administration. There was there was money we found to build a lot of schools around the state. And everybody, I believe, would, would acknowledge that there's been significant improvement 
on that part of the problem. So, so the, on that part, a lot of progress made. No one's the being in the, the coal the un- bin anymore. That well, I think was the legendary story it, from the it, day. There were terrible stories and and you know uh, outhouses and and in wintertime mm-hmm. and so forth. But uh, it's not to say every school facility in the state is uh, perfect. Sure. At this point, I was in Licking County the other night, and they were talking about some of the problems they have there. But the other side of it was the operational money. Uh, to the schools, and that was where the Supreme Court, although it had uh, declared the system unconstitutional, was never willing to impose a remedy, and the legislature, frankly, ignored the decision and did not address it, and we did not follow through on that side of things. So I think there's unfinished business under the DeRolf decision that uh, needs to be taken up, and that'll, that'll be a bit of a battle. It'll be a budget battle with the legislature over what needs to be done and how we move away from the residual budgeting for the schools and all the types of issues I know you're very familiar with that have been coming up over the last 10 to 15 years. But that would be my view of the of the issue. Charter schools is the other thing. I mean, the school choice movement, uh, I think, was born out of a, a lot of frustration with, with traditional public education, perhaps, uh, maybe in the urban areas. But now it's evolved into things like ECOT, which had to, of course had to shut down here in the middle of the school year, 12,000 kids, give or take. No school, no place to go in the middle of the year or no place to log on to since they were online students. What about this charter school experiment in Ohio, especially the online variant? So I think uh, everybody's beginning to recognize the ECOT will be the inexcusable scandal of 2018. The fact that uh, this uh, online charter school with something like more than 10,000 kids supposedly enrolled but never any accountability over whether they were actually doing anything, whether they were being uh, held to actually uh, spend time in the classroom or even spend time online, whether they were getting an education. Uh, The money was pouring into that school, but uh, very little was happening uh, as a result. Now that that's been exposed, uh, everybody's scrambling around because uh, what happened was for years, uh, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars was poured into that school. We now see that there's 50, 60, 70 million that the state has has vanished, that the state is not going to get back, uh, let alone what was poured into the schools before. It came back in terms of campaign contributions to uh, Republicans in the legislature and Republicans in state offices to the tune of millions of dollars. And to me, that's a scandal that has shortchanged our children, our schools, our teachers, our parents, our communities, uh, and public education through the state. For myself, I went. I was born uh, just south of Grove City, and and as you know, grew up there. My brothers and I went through the public schools. We got a we got a great education. It built the base for everything that uh, I've been able to to do and all the opportunity I've ever had in my life. Uh, we sent our twins, uh, my wife and I, through the public schools uh, just west of Grove City, and they also got a great education. And our public schools can function well. And by the way, in Ohio, it's always been a partnership between our public schools and our parochial schools, and t- together they have been a strong foundation for success in this state. The charter school experiment is has been an experiment. The for-profit charter schools have, have often performed dismally. There has been no accountability from state government about what's working and what's not is not working, and that can't be allowed to continue. That's something that uh, the governor will have a lot of say over in terms of holding uh, these different schools to account in terms of whether they're performing or not performing, living up to their promises or not. ECOT is the glaring example of how poorly that was done in state government, and people have a lot to answer for there. We're probably just about out of time. Marty, you have one more you want to? Well, I just uh, wanted to ask uh, what Rich thinks about uh, Ohio's pass-through tax break on LLCs and other uh, such entities. Do you think that that's 
worked for Ohio and should it be continued? I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. First of all, when I was state treasurer, we had a small business job growth program that we called Grow Now. It built on a program Mary Ellen Withrow, who had been state treasurer years before, had first created, but it had fallen into disuse. Through that program, we were able to create thousands of, of jobs in Ohio. And I think that the state government could work with our small businesses around the state. It's hard work because instead of just working with a few large corporations, you're having to deal with hundreds or thousands of small businesses and understand what they need, when they could use some help, how, how you could actually help them uh, progress to grow. The small business tax paths through has supposedly been a help to small businesses, but it's unclear whether it has met any of its objectives. It has cost a billion dollars, and so the question whether that billion dollars is being well spent there or not. I do think the state government should uh, make it an absolute priority, and we will under, under Governor Cordray, to support small businesses and understand that a lot of our economic development should be focused there at strong, stable small businesses that have opportunities to grow. They are rooted in our community. They're not trying to play people against one another and, and seek to move to other states, getting tax cuts there, and then leveraging our communities here. Uh, that's, that's the place we should focus. And financing and technical help and a real focus on, on that is, is the way for us to go. Again, whether the pass-through uh, uh, tax uh, thing has actually accomplished much for small businesses, uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, I, I will be glad to know more and see more as we dig into state government once we, once we take office. Before we go, let me uh, let you shoot down a stereotype, if you will. Uh, boy, this is a hard one now. We waited all the way to the end. Is Rich Cordray boring on the campaign trail? Well, I don't think uh, the big banks found me boring when I was taking them on as attorney general or as head of the CFPB. I don't think people found it boring when we went out and worked to try to save and keep them in their homes facing the foreclosure crisis. I think that uh, people will see that I have a real passion for the work that we have done in state government before and the work that remains undone and needs to be finished in state government. Uh, uh, Could I stand to improve my presentation? I think like everyone, yes, and I will be doing that. Uh, but at the same time, there's nothing boring to me about improving life for Ohioans standing on their side, focusing on the kitchen table issues and trying to improve their lives in those respects. And I don't think uh, people in our communities find any of that boring either. They find it to be almost a life or death issue for a lot of them as they struggle from paycheck to paycheck and are looking for help from state government to understand their needs and how, how we can help improve their lives. Very good. Well, let's wind it up there, folks. Uh, again, Rich Cordray, Democratic candidate for governor. With us, Marty Schladen, my colleague in Dispatch Public Affairs. Pat Flaherty over on the, the controls. I'm Daryl Rowland, Public Affairs Editor. And, you know, if you've listened this far, there's a bunch more of these podcasts on the same place you found this one on our website. So check out all the candidates. We've invited every one of them to come in. Several have taken advantage of that. A few have not yet. Hopefully by the end of the process, we'll get them all in here. So again, thanks for listening. Have a great day.